This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. Hello and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, my name's Heather Parry and I am thrilled to be here tonight with um, a bit of a personal hero of mine. <laughs> Don't make it weird, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Gina Martin is an activist, writer and an inspiration to a whole generation of change makers. In February 2019, her 18-month campaign to make upskirting a sexual offence in England and Wales was successful. And the... Yeah. <laughs> Thanks! <laughs> And the Voyeurism Act was passed into law. Uh, this year she won uh, the Equality Champion of the Year at the Stylist Magazine Remarkable Women Awards. Um, please give a huge warm welcome to Gina Martin. Thank you. <laughs> a lovely introduction. <laughs> um, just to give you a bit of an idea how the event's going to go today, um, Gina's going to give us a little bit of a reading, a bit of an introduction to the book. Then we're going to have a nice chat about it and a few related things. And then uh, you're going to have a chance to ask some questions as well. So um, get them taken over in your mind. Um, afterwards, Gina is going to be in the signing tent, signing her book, which you should buy five copies of. Um, <laughs> yes, and please. get them all signed. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're going to start out with a little bit of a reading. OK, so I'm going to read the introduction to the book, but I want to caveat it by saying this book is not about how to change a law, because that would have like four readers. Um, and it's not about upskirting, but I just wanted to read the beginning because I guess it gives context to the rest of the conversation we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll start with the instruction. 9th of July 2017. It was 30 degrees. Every blade of grass in London had been burnt to a golden ash, and I was so bloody happy because I was seeing the killers in Hyde Park with my older sister, Stevie. Stevie is my best friend, and that year we hadn't seen each other all that much. We'd grown up listening to and loving the killers, so we both decided to fork out the 80 pounds which we couldn't afford to, <laughs> to have that one day together in the sun and forget the stress of London life. We'd got ready, dressed up, and were so excited about a day of laughing, dancing, and finally seeing our favourite childhood band together. As kids who gro had grown up around music with a musician father and been in and around the music industry, gigs were a happy place. Music was, and still is, escapism for us, and this day was meant to be just that. As we weaved our way through lounging festival-goers, I noticed a guy lying on the grass looking up at the sky. My eyes were drawn to him because he'd planted himself in, in an unusual spot. He was lying with his head obstructing a strip of grass that people were using to get through the crowds and was making no effort to move, forcing them to step over him. I got closer and saw his eyes dart to the legs of a girl weaving around him. It was then that I realised he'd deliberately positioned himself so he could look up the skirts of girls and women rushing towards the main stage. Without thinking, as if it was second nature, I patted down the back of my skirt and hopped past him. I didn't challenge this guy on what he was doing. I didn't call him out. Looking back now, I wish I had, but I suppose, like most women, I was used to it. An hour later, we were standing in the 60,000-strong crowd waiting for the band to take the stage when a group of men started paying me unwanted attention. This was something I'd become accustomed to, and I was used to it, and I knew how to deal with it, or at least I thought I did. One of the guys was wearing a killer's T-shirt and a trucker-style cap, and I clocked him as the ringleader immediately. Although I made it clear that I wasn't interested, he started persisting, persistently hitting on me with a smirk. I rebuffed him firmly with a smile, as always. Be polite, Gina. Don't make a fuss. 
In truth, I was trying not to anger a man who was intimidating me. Men who I don't know to men who I don't know that use intimidation to coerce me into what they want, attention, inappropriate conversation or otherwise, make me feel nervous. They always have. I've seen too much and heard too much to not feel that way. So being polite was, and still is, a way to keep myself safe. He tried again and again, and when he finally realised I wasn't biting, he announced loudly that he bet I was give it good at giving blowjobs. His mates laughed. For me, the mood quickly turned. The line had been crossed and Stevie and I bristled. I felt us sort of locked together with an unspoken acknowledgement that this had taken a sharp turn to exactly where we had thought it was going but hoped it wouldn't. One kind of gin and mixer down, I decided to communicate to him that this would end here, and so I said he sounded like a 12-year-old. Stevie laughed. I turned my back on him once more to show I wasn't interested in any kind of conversation or physical contact. Minutes later, I was aware of them stifling their laughter behind me and an uneasy feeling simmered up in my belly. I instinctively knew that my remark had angered or embarrassed the trucker hat guy, and now I had this unnerving feeling that he'd kind of done something to me. I just wasn't sure what, but I knew this kind of guy wasn't one to accept being rejected. I was partially surrounded by the group, as you often are in festival crowds, and in front of me stood one of the biggest guys, a blonde, muscly type. He was on his phone, and around the side of him, I happened to catch sight of the screen. He had a chat on WhatsApp open, and a thumbnail of a photo taken up a woman's skirt that he'd been sent. It stared back at me. I could see it clearly. It was well taken, in broad daylight, and you could see it all. Her thighs, her buttocks, her pubic hair, and her genitals covered only by a thin, slightly twisted strip of underwear. It was a horrible picture, and I knew instantly that it was me. Without thinking, I lunged and snatched the phone out of his hand, raising it up into the air. You've got a picture of my vagina, what is wrong with you? I bellowed, beginning to choke up. He spun around and grabbed me by the shoulders, shaking me and shouting that it was a picture of the stage. He was huge. I slapped him, he screamed something in my face and his grip tightened. And, he shook, and as he shook me, I made a point to look directly and systematically into the eyes of all the people around us and to say repeatedly, help. I heard my sister crying and shouting at this guy, but I could tell she wasn't next to me, so I instinctively passed the phone to a woman I didn't know. The blonde guy got in her face, demanding she pass it over, but she refused, and I held it firmly behind her back. To this day, I'm desperate to find out who she was. What a hero. The next thing I know, two guys in the crowd shouted for me to run, and the woman slipped the phone into my hand. I tore off, pushing through a sea of people, begging them to let me pass as the killers took to the stage and the first song blared out. I thought I'd lost him, but as I emerged from the last stragglers of the crowd, I heard his feet pounding the dusty grass behind me. I came into view of the security staff, and I saw concern flood their faces. I managed to reach them just before the blonde guy did, ducking behind a hefty guard who brought the guy's momentum to a stop and shielded me as he took a swipe at me. Immediately, I blurted out what had happened, and the guard quietly and calmly told me to slip the phone into his pocket. As I did, Stevie came speeding out the bouncing crowd and held me while the blonde guy spat and shouted that his friend had taken the photos. Fine, the guard said. Go and get him then. He wouldn't. We were led over to the police, and I remember physically exhaling when I saw a male police officer accompanied by a female officer coming towards me. She'll get it, I thought to myself. She'll understand this. They separated me and the blonde guy... Sorry, they separated me and the blonde guy and asked me what had happened. I was crying pretty hard at this point, but I managed to calm myself down enough to get it out in detail. The security guard backed me up and the police were sympathetic. It's still so clear in my mind what the male police officer said to me next. He told me with genuine dismay, you should be able to go to a music festival in 30 degrees and not be worried about someone taking a photo up your skirt. I exhaled. They got this. They're on my side. After we talked, they headed over to speak to him. As they did, I remember, the, I remember trying to dance. This is so lame. I remember trying to dance to the song the killers were playing with Stevie, the man. I was so desperately attempting to pre pretend everything was okay, but was just limply shuffling from one foot to the other and crying while Stevie held me. I was literally like, <laughs> so shit. 
sorry. And it's weird because even now when I hear the verse of that song in a bar or a club, I immediately feel about four inches tall. Eventually, the police came back over and told me that there was nothing they could do. The photograph, they said, was not a graphic image because I was wearing underwear. They guessed that if I'd not been wearing it, I would have been, it would have been a different story. Finally, they reassured me that they'd made him delete the picture. Great, I thought, that's one less person who has a picture of my vagina. If I'd, been one less, if I'd been in less of a state, I would have realized that my evidence had actually just been deleted. They ushered us back into the festival and Stevie asked if I wanted to leave. I didn't want to ruin the entire day, so I said no. We stayed and tried to enjoy the rest of the gig. To anyone else, it would have looked like I was having a great time, but denial is a very funny thing. It was easy to pretend because I wanted it to all be okay, but I couldn't really push what had happened to the back of my mind. I felt weird and humiliated and violated, and what's worse, I knew the guys who'd done this were probably just having a great night. When I look back now, I understand how I was behaving. As women, we're used to putting up with and brushing off harassment, intimidation, assault, or worse, all the time. We feel it's our fault that we're causing a fuss, and I, dancing away after this, had just happened, was the embodiment of that. I was just getting on with it. Four days later, I was heading to Latitude Festival for a job. It was super last minute, and I threw a bunch of clothes in a bag. While getting ready, I picked up a skirt and decided against packing it, but eventually, urged by my boyfriend, and in a mini act of defiance, I took it along and swore to wear it. On the way to the festival, I received a call from the Met Police, and a tired and emotionless voice told me that my case was closed and nothing else would be done. I hung up, and I swear to God something inside of me snapped. This concoction of anger and dismay and defiance simmered in my belly. I'd been putting up with guys smacking my arse, shouting at me in the street and screaming disgusting stuff at me from cars for years. I will cry. I'd worn headphones to avoid the comments. Oh, I always cry. Every time I speak, I cry. It's okay, because it's fine. Power isn't about not crying anymore. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I'd worn headphones to avoid the comments, carried keys between my fingers at night, avoided the underpass, built to save my life from oncoming, tra oncoming traffic. I'd made up having a boyfriend, because no was never enough in clubs. I'd laughed when a security guard, employed to protect me when I was working in a rowdy student bar, felt my boobs to see if I was wearing a stab-proof vest. I told no one when a man on the tube rested his open hand firmly on my right butt cheek from Camden to Houston during the rush hour crush. I'd ignored it when my boyfriend's boss showed everyone at work a photo of my legs and then asked my boyfriend if he could show, do you know what a real man is? I'd seen how men's eyes had deepened and suddenly look at me differently when I turned 16. And I'd... Sorry. It's okay. I haven't got a tissue. Does anyone have a tissue? <laughs> it's all right. I just <laughs> snot on myself <laughs> constantly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we have a tissue right here. Oh, I hear Thanks. it. Thanks. Sorry. Thank you so much. You're the ally we need. Yes, male allies. <laughs> yes, please. Love it. Um, uh, where am I up to? I'd seen how men's eyes had deepened and suddenly looked at me differently when I turned 16, and I'd pushed it aside when guys in bars had moved to grind their crotches against my back without any warning. I'd been sexualized without consent for as long as I could remember, and I was fucking over it. I was over accepting it as part of life, as part of my fee for being born a woman, so this time I thought, I'll talk about it. Surely it didn't have to be part of life. Surely I deserved more than this bullshit constantly. I was sick of putting on an act. I was exhausted. I was done. That's the beginning of the book. Sorry. <laughs> Shouldn't have read that bit. Should have read the bit where it was like, should have read the like cool political bit, where it was like killing it that bit. <laughs> well, to be honest with you, when I read that, I teared up as well, and I'm sure a lot of other people did, and they will when they read it because it's so familiar to female experience, and you know, other people as well. But yeah, it's kind of central to the female experience. Um, so, can you tell us how you got from there, from being angry and upset and feeling like you'd been abandoned to where we are now, 
which is that you became an activist and got the law changed. Yeah, so it's obviously like a really long, complex process, and it was like two years, but I think if I was going to boil it down into sort of easy, digestible stages, um, after the call was made where the case was dropped... I found a photo on my phone of me and Stevie, this selfie of us taking a picture. We got someone else to take it right before it had happened, right before the guy upscaled me. And the guys were in the background of the photo, by chance. And so I was like, okay, I have this photo, and the police couldn't help, and they didn't do anything. And I think, I think I'd looked into the law very, in a very small way. I'd, like, I'd Googled something quickly and thought, I think there's a gap here, but I don't really know. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to put this picture on social media, and I'm going to ask people to share it. And CV had, you know, CV's already had a career then, and she had friends who had careers, and I kind of asked them to all share it and asked other people. And it kind of went like a very tiny bit viral, like 3,000 people shared it or something. And um, I said on the caption, like, can we just find these people? I just want someone to recognise them, because I just want some kind of punishment. I want them to be embarrassed at the very least. And yeah, so it went a bit viral, and then Facebook contacted me and said... Uh, you have to take that photo down because that's harassment. Like me harassing them because their face was on Facebook, but obviously the photo, you get it. And uh, and that's when I got re- and then I got really angry because I was like, the, this, the structures that are meant to be there to catch you when this thing happens. And we talk about, you know, victims of sexual assault or victims of sexual violence all the time, like what they need to do. Okay, you need to get a picture, you need to see what the guy looks like, get the phone, get, you know you know, did you report it that day? And if you didn't, then we don't believe you. And we have so many rules for victims. And I kind of did everything. I couldn't have done more. Like, I handed the guy the phone, the picture, and I had, like, 60,000 witnesses. And so I did everything, and then still it was like, okay, that, that support system doesn't catch you, and then the law doesn't catch you, so then social media is kind of the, the democracy version of what you can kind of use. It goes, okay, I can control this, and I can do something, and then that didn't work. Mm-hmm. So that's when I got really angry. But the, that moment of sharing that post made me realise the power of it, because I'd got those numbers just for that one post, so I was like, okay, well, I could start a social media campaign here. And I'd worked in advertising for six years, um, in London, mostly on like traditional advertising for the first three, but then on digital. So I knew how social media works. It's a science. You know how to build the numbers. It's not this nebulous thing I think a lot of people think it is. So I kind of employed some of that thinking, made a social media campaign, a petition, did some paid Facebook ads with uh, the petition site. Um, then I kind of packaged up those numbers on social media and basically you're going, look, there's already an audience for this conversation. So then I took that to, like, TV producers and said, look, these many people are under- completely confused as to why this isn't a sexual offence, and they're totally angry about what's happened to me, and, and actually important to note that this was six months before Me Too had happened, and when I put the petition up, a mini kind of upskirting Me Too thing happened. It was like a mini version of that where in the comments people were just sharing all the stories of upskirting and it was, there were so many of them, like I couldn't believe how many there were. And then all these really young girls came at the same time to the petition, so that they were between sort of, I don't know, 7 and 15 and they were all saying their teacher had upskirted them in school. And I was like, where are these girls coming from? Like, where are these young girls coming from? Something's going on here. And they were messaging me on, like, uh, Twitter and Instagram as well. A few of them there, but mostly just on the comments because they felt safer doing it that way. And then I found this story about in Croydon, this teacher called Andrew Cornish, not going to not say his name, um, was ups- they found 5,000 photos. He'd upskirted all of the young girls in school, but they're all wearing knickers, so it wasn't a graphic image. And this wasn't a sexual offence, but he's doing it to kids. And that was when it was like, oh, OK, this is way bigger than, like, your case, Gina. Like, do something about this. Um, so the petition happened, social media, and then, yeah, sold that to traditional media, went on TV and did a couple of debates about it, and then kind of realised that I was, like, shouting about something 
and I was doing an awareness campaign, which is great, but it was me being like, why isn't this a thing? Someone do something, instead of just being like, why don't you do it? Like, why don't you try and do it? You might not do it, but just give it a go. And that's when I went to a law firm. I got a lawyer who is a baby angel called Ryan Whelan, and he's like the best man in the world. And uh, we partnered together, he represented me for free. He was 29, he was dead bright, like not jaded by the industry. He was so passionate about it. And um, we partnered and we went to the government and then we did 18 months there and, that's, and then we got the law passed. But that's like a short version of it, really. That's, um, that's incredible. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <Yeah>. Cheers. <laughs> I think it's so easy to be that person asking, why doesn't someone do it? But not everyone knows that you can even. They think it's so far away from you. Um, and I wanted to ask you what... I feel like that's what you're challenging with the book because you called the book... Um, a toolkit for activism in you. So yeah. it's not just a book, it's, it will give you the tools you need. So what were you hoping to, were you hoping to challenge the idea? Yeah, definitely. I think for me specifically, I, I love that phrase about like create the thing you needed. And this book is like what I would have wanted at the beginning of the campaign because specifically for me, I'm not an academic person. I'm a very creative person. I was very average in school. I was very happy to be a very average in school. I really liked school, but I didn't get A's really. Um, I was good at English, thank God, I've written a book. But that was the only thing I was academically good at. And I really struggled with like understanding the world of politics and law when I started this. So I, the first thing I did when I thought, oh, I'll try and change the law, which is now looks like a just bonkers thing to think, I think, now looking back. But I Googled, like, how do you change a law? <laughs> and like nothing came up, obviously. And... Um, and then all the things that did come up, so I like read um, things about the parliamentary procedure and about like legislation in the UK and all this stuff. It was so like academic and I, it was so dry and I just couldn't get my head around it because it was written by brilliant people who have been in that world for a long time. And it just didn't feel accessible for someone who just isn't academic and doesn't understand that world. So it was like, okay, well, why don't I write something that's really accessible for everyone at whatever the st stage they're in and just pack it full of all the stuff I've learned in the last two years and specifically practical stuff because I feel like Especially in, at the moment with the kind of commodification of feminism, specifically, where we are like, go girl, you know, kill it. My sister has this, my sister's a comedian. She has this bit in her show all about like slaying the game, babe, and all that stuff. And like, you never wake up like, I'm going to slay it. You know, that's not how you exist. And every time I go to, to, you know, do panels and stuff and they're so great and you leave me like, yeah, but what do I do? You know? Yeah. So I really wanted it to have like practical advice in it. So it's, you know, how to write a press release, how to use social media for an awareness campaign. Like there's nowhere that you can find that what the platform does, how you write a great tweet, how you get engagement on a post. Like that doesn't really exist in a in a um in a quick format that you can read. And just all kinds of stuff like that, really, um, about po politics and how to campaign 101, how to get local media, how to get celebrities on board, even just how to buy more ethically, like small things you can do. But I just wanted it to be a place where you feel like you can start because Starting is the hardest thing, I think, with anything that seems scary. Yeah, and you've even got, like, uh, mind map templates for sort of, like, yes. well, figure out what's important to you and figure out where you go from there. Yeah, like, what you want to campaign against. That's a big part of it, I think, is figuring out what you care about and what you want to do. Because if you... It's very easy to go, oh, that sounds interesting, I'll do that. But if it's not something that comes from your own experience or inside you, you run out of steam very quickly. So I think that's probably the biggest part, actually, that you just mentioned. Should have mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did want to mention that when you started looking into this, you found that 
it was um, upscaling was actually an offence in Scotland. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, and yeah, I'm here for the first time yeah. since that. Yeah. Little ripple of smugness happened. Yeah. There. <laughs> you should be proud. <laughs> You've had it down for ten years. Do you know why that was the case? That it was um, an, an offence, a sexual offence here, and not in England. Do you know what? Me and Ryan never got to the bottom of that. We really never worked out what it was. But there was there was multiple conversations. Scotland seems to do that with like a lot of progressive issues. Like there's multiple progressive issues we talk about that Scotland's already been having conversations about it to eight to ten years ago and I don't know what that is I mean you're just great obviously but there was a conversation around the culture around here with kilts as well so like guys have been dealing with basically upskirting because there's a morbid fascination of like are you wearing underneath underwear under there like whatever which is weird um so that's been kind of a cultural thing here for guys so there was a lot of conversation around okay guys have been dealing with this as well so it's more of a um a cultural thing for everyone therefore it got through faster Mm um which is great but kind of you know when I annoying when the conversation would get around to it because I'd be like well I've been trying for two years can we just do it already because I got it in Scotland yeah um I wanted to pick up on something you just mentioned there and that's um social media as a positive force for yeah. good because we so often think of it especially talking about women's issues and sexual offense issues mm. as a negative thing but like you mentioned you not only had your campaign there's me too which is probably the most fundamental thing that's happened mm. in terms of women's rights in you know our sort of generation so yeah how do you how can people sort of enhance that sort of grab that and use it in a way that's positive for whatever they want to achieve I think there's so there's multiple ways. Social media is such a tricky one because it gets such a bad rep, which it deserves because it's so bad for your mental health in some ways. But the truth is, is we have we all have a responsibility. People who put out content, people who consume, have a responsibility to deal with it in the way that feels good to them. We spend so much time there on our phones now. We spend most of our time there. It's like I know people. Well, I probably spend about nine hours a day on it because I work in it as well. And you have to create a space that you want to be in. My, my feed used to be full of people that made me feel crap about myself. That wasn't their fault. I'm sure I am to someone else. I'm a person that makes them feel crap about self for some reason, and that's fine. I, I feel like we have to unfollow and curate a place we want to spend time that makes us feel good about stuff, because otherwise you're spending six hours looking at other people's lives and feeling crap about yourself, and that's just not fair. And there's always going to be stuff you don't like, but content creators specifically have a massive responsibility to make that place a better place to be. Because right, I feel like in 15 years, we're going to look back at social media and be like, what were we doing? Like, there was no regulations. We were on it six hours a day. Kids, like, kids were just on it at 13, comparing their lives and the way they look already before they even knew about the world and their society and their community. Um, so there's so much wrong with it. But also, I've been opened up to like an amazing part of it since my work, where... There's people doing incredible stuff on there. And, like, the kind of campaigns about LGBTQI plus people's rights and, like, there's incredible communities growing and, like, brilliant editorial platforms that are showing everyone and, you know, people in all, of all different forms of different backgrounds and social economic backgrounds and race and gender identity and this beautiful, like, complex place where people are learning together as well. So you have to find the pockets that you belong in. Um, but it's very hard to do, but you have to take that on yourself because it's 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 really bad for you if you use it wrong and it's really um, good for you if you use it right but I also think we need to be better bystanders online like you will only report an, a comment if it's to you and it hurts your feelings you see people say the most horrific stuff to people all day online if someone was in if someone stood up in this room right now and shouted at someone right that I'd be going what are you doing but online I'm just like don't say anything we need to be calling out the things we see online and protecting each other and being a better community online because it's a it's a dangerous place to be right now and i think in 15 years it's going to change massively for sure yeah did you also find it helped you access people with power and also hold them to account 
Yes, it so is. So I think that you you can more readily access like MPs, sort yeah. of feeds and things like that. You can. You have a, a kind of more direct line to the people that were completely untouchable before. And that's because everyone exists online personally, but also professionally. Like pretty much the campaign contact book, I guess, that I built was built from Twitter. Like I just put in an editorial name and then all the people who work there come up obviously because they've either tweeted about it or it's in their bio or they're connected to it so you can just find journalists I found most of the the PRs for celebrities on there I found politicians on there that I would try and have conversations with privately and if they weren't kind of giving I would publicly be like yo what are you what are you doing and embarrass <laughs> them um I, there was so many conversations that happened from that and you do have a direct line to it and you can um I mean you even look at brands and advertising like we're we're now calling brands out and we're calling people out quicker than they've ever been called out before and they have to change their behavior and that's a really good thing but also it does mean that then they just you know like we're looking at lgbt washing and green washing they're saying they're doing the right things when they're actually not because they know they can get called out really quickly yeah. but we have to hold people to account we can do that online and also we can have a direct line to people online um and we can get make contacts and mobilize quicker than you ever can before like you can basically do anything if you have a laptop in a bedroom now yeah for free that just it wasn't possible before so that's a massive tool and if we use it for good i can't imagine the um the amazing things we could do with it I, i'm so excited to see what happens in the next 10 years with it i thought it was really interesting in the book that you almost cautioned against that kind of call out culture when you do start getting to access people with power yeah. that you mentioned that um somewhat like a news outlet picked something up and said something that you had said about a person you were about to meet yeah and then that doesn't really endear them to your <laughs> yeah cause. so I was meeting with politicians to try and get them on board the campaign me and Ryan were kind of building an army across all parties to try and get all these politicians on board and they didn't the really critical thing was like we had to meet with everyone from every party because then if i met with labor first it became a labor issue and they supported women's rights but they couldn't pass the law maybe or then if i met with conservatives it became a conservative issue and it's a human issue i think so often we're looking left and right instead of like up and down we're like oh it's a labor issue oh it's a conservative issue we're not just looking at human issues and talking about human issues and um so i was meeting with all these uh, MPs with Ryan and they didn't know who i was meeting with at what time because we were kind of secretly i guess building this kind of list of people who supported us and i said i can't remember exactly what it was but i something i said something that sounded like i wasn't being supportive of labor or someone i can't remember what it was and it got taken out of context and then someone said it and i was like well, i'm about to meet with them the next day so it it's really hard because everything's public but you have to be very careful about what you're doing especially in campaigning because there's just as much secrecy in campaigning as there is public you only choose what you put public and as a campaigner you're kind of going against the status quo so you sort of have to be a bit of a spy because you people can't really know where, who you're meeting with at, at what time because you're planning this strategy so social media is difficult for campaigning but it's also genius for campaigning because um yeah you get access to people and you can create your own narrative you can control the narrative like you couldn't before before you do the work and then people report on what they think of your work when chope objected to the bill and i was in the house with him which happened last year our first bill when we got a second bill through but when christopher chope objected to the first bill before he'd even left the house i'd already tweeted a statement so i controlled the narrative like that so all the media picked up on my narrative straight away we just couldn't do that before mm. that's a huge benefit and a massive advantage for campaigners now and activists and and everyone really um i wanted to ask you about um imposter syndrome sorry oh, there's a fly in my drink <laughs> <laughs> you can have mine thanks um because i having met you and having read the book i imagine you just marching 
into Westminster, sort no. of throwing the doors open, and having your hair like no. very much legally blonde in my no. <laughs> See, this is the problem. This is what it seems like, but that's not what it's like. <laughs> I was hoping you could tell us whether you um, suffered from imposter syndrome. Yeah, I get. Well, like, this is the thing: is that I never really know if I did or I was just well underconfident. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I understand that imposter syndrome is like a very heavy, chronic version of just feeling like you're going to get found out. And, that, and I feel that more now, actually, than I did during the campaign because no one knew who was during the campaign. And even though I was really scared and I didn't know what I was doing, I had Ryan with me and there was this real sense of like unity between us. And, I, and the thing is about the campaign is I knew I was right. Like I knew that this should change. So I had confidence in my assertions, just not in being in a room with politicians because I had no idea what I was doing at the beginning. But... I think I was, I did feel like an imposter in those scenarios, and I think it was the environment I was in. It wasn't the work, it was going into spaces that I just didn't feel like I belonged in at all, and just not understanding why, really, how I'd got there, I guess. And there was a moment in the, in the lobby of the House of Parliament I always talk about before that we went in, because I was there for every single stage of the bill. So me and Ryan would go in every single stage and we'd sit in the gallery and we'd kind of look over them while they were reading through the bills, just so they knew that we weren't letting up, like we were waiting to see what they were going to do at every moment. And um, before you go into the house, they have like a procession with the big gold stick. <laughs> What's it called? I think it's called a big gold stick in my Okay, <laughs> that's embarrassing. Uh, some, someone in this room knows what it's called. I don't know what it's called. The mace. mace, thank you so much, the mace. <laughs> <laughs> and they do this big thing and, and everyone kind of sort of looks at the floor you don't really look in their eyes and it's stunning and it's like you know that place is like Hogwarts like it's on acid it's amazing and me I was standing there like this is beautiful and Ryan was like yeah it's cool isn't it it's amazing and this guy walked past me like right here and he went oh it reminds me of my school I just, oh my God, I just walked off and I was like where did you go to school like it's a wonderful place, but it is, it is, everyone is very, very privileged there, and they're very, very white, and they're very, very um, educated, and they, a lot of them come from Eton, and it's just not a place that represents what the street outside looks like. So I just automatically didn't feel comfortable there. So that is probably where that, that feeling came from, I think. I think it was just not feeling like I belonged there, and it was hard to get through that, but you just, I think you just have to, if you, if you really believe in something, you're fighting for the right thing. Just had to keep going. Do you think they're designed to do that I don't know I think I learned a lot about the history oh thank you <laughs> <laughs> I learned a lot about the history of the, the, the building and how they built it and, and why but I wonder whether it was it feels that way it certainly feels that way it certainly feels like it's built for a certain type of person and therefore anyone else who goes in there immediately feels like they're not meant to be there and, if, and that's worse because when you we often have conversations about, okay, how do we make this... Like, I've done panels in Parliament now. How do we make this place less intimidating? How do we make it more diverse? How do we get young people in, people of colour, LGBTQIA plus communities? How do we want them to, you know... How do we get them to want to spend time here? And it's like, you can do that all you want, get people in, but if the environment they're in makes them feel like the odd one out and makes them feel like they're not, they don't belong and that they're uncomfortable, it's actually worse, because then they leave and they never want to come back. Mm. So it certainly feels like it was built for, for no one but literally Christopher Jope. Yeah. Um, but hopefully that will change over time. They're definitely trying to modernise it, which I hope they do. And they're getting lots of school kids in there going in more for school trips and stuff. They're trying to keep it more open. So I hope they continue to do that because we need more regular working class people in there for sure. Yeah, and the more we get, the more then we'll feel like they can go in. Yeah, so. exactly. Um, you, I know that with the book you want to 
empower people to be an activist in whatever they, way they feel. And yeah. I know you, it's not all about changing the law. Obviously, no. that's an incredible thing if you can do it. Um, but not everyone can. So I was hoping you could speak a little bit about writing as activism, because that's kind of where you started, isn't it? You wrote an article about your experience. Yes, yeah. I, when I was younger, I worked in advertising, but my sister has been a journalist for a long time. And I really wanted to write about some little bits and bobs. And I started that about six years ago. Stevie gave me a couple of contacts and I wrote for like one, I wrote for Refinery29. It was the only editorial platform I wrote for. And then, so when the campaign started, the first thing that happened was I asked um, Giselle Wainwright, who was the editor of now defunct Look Magazine. And she said, do you want to write your story? I was like, well, yeah, I guess so. Because then it would feel like something good came out of this and it would feel like, I used my voice and I talked about this experience and maybe someone reads it. But really, probably that was a selfish, just cathartic thing for me to do. And it all kind of came off the back of that. And we find that a lot with editorial stuff. We find activism and progressive, like positive progression society always starts from someone standing up and going, this happened, or I want to talk about this. And they're always scared to do it. But as soon as a single person stands up, there is never, it's never, I would, I would put everything I own on the fact that it's never happened that someone stood up and gone, this happened to me and no one else has had the same experience. You always have people around you who feel the same. And so when you use your voice, you get a group of a community that then buoys you up to carry on and then you feel like you have the confidence to carry on. And writing can be an amazing tool for that because we have so much content coming out all the time. And I think, especially now with digestible content, we're all getting slower and sl uh, quicker and quicker. Um, what's it called? Uh, when you're like a goldfish and you remember something five seconds later and then... <laughs> oh, I've done it. Look at me. I'm like a goldfish. <laughs> like it just goes attention out of your head spans. too quickly. Yeah. Attention spans. We're getting quicker and quicker attention spans. Mm -hmm. Like we're really struggling to take in long form content, but people are pushing against that now. Mm -hmm. And I feel like because of social media, we want to sit down and read and really understand the lived experience and really understand how people feel and have like a deeper connection with content. And online editorial is brilliant for that. And there's so many amazing voices happening. Like my friend Jamie, who's non-binary, they've, they've started this um, magazine called Fruitcake and it's all non-binary writers. And you just don't get that content anywhere. I can't read that content anywhere else. And the, the stories that come out of it are wonderful. And the things that have happened from those stories because they found their community and now they feel confident enough to be able to say, okay, take it, take it a step further. Mm -hmm. It's great because that's what activism is. It's just like, um, it's like exercising a muscle. You take one step and you go, oh, I'm really nervous, I'll do that. And then you go, oh, okay, oh, I did that. Okay, well, maybe I could do this next. It's just that. I didn't know what I was doing half the time. It's just small steps, like anything. Mm. So I think writing is a huge, a huge thing for that. And, and we need writing. We need to hear more people's stories. We need more storytelling that's way more diverse anyway. And it's a way of saying this thing that we all experience. It's actually not okay, is it? Like yes. For the first time, I imagine um, here, like reading your book, reading your introduction, if you know, people hadn't experienced it, it wouldn't affect them in the same way, but so many have that yeah. you can't fail to be sort of like roused to action by it. Yeah. Um, I wanted to get you to speak a little bit mm -hmm. about white privilege mm -hmm. and how it relates to activism um, because you've tackled it in an inspired way in the book. Can you tell everyone about that? Yeah, so I really wanted to write about white privilege in the book because... I think there, there's a slight danger, I think, in the work I do now, trying to get people to take some kind of positive actions in their community or in their work or in their school, of the idea of like being an activist is, is going to become this like cool thing that's like, I'm an activist and that's my job. It's not a job. You don't get paid to do it. It comes from passion. It's a massive privilege to be able to decide to take something on and try and change society because a lot of people don't have that choice. They have to because it's literally their life or their death. It's like politics. It's like when I used to say when I was a kid, oh, I, don't, I wasn't a kid, that's a lie, I was like 20. 
I used to say, like, oh, I'm not really into politics, which is so easy to say when it doesn't affect your life if you don't vote, because I'm incredibly privileged and I live in Western society in London and I'm a white girl who's fairly slim and I'm educated. It's very easy for me to say that I'm not into politics because it doesn't affect me if I don't vote, which is a very ignorant thing to say. So the idea behind this, the chapter in the book, which is white privilege and activism, was kind of looking at how white privilege specifically, because that's my... Um, my obviously most obvious form of privilege, really, that I'm trying to tackle and work out, how that intersects with activism. And I really wanted to write this section and be really honest in it, but I think when we talk about race, especially as white people, we get very defensive and worried about saying anything wrong and therefore we don't talk about it. Because if we talk about it, that kind of is an admission that we're part of the problem and we just don't want to have that conversation. The truth is we're all part of the problem with the way society is now. And it's not a personal thing and we have to put our egos aside and talk about race. That's it. So when I was writing this, the chapter, I kind of writ it, <laughs> wrote it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm really tired. No, uh, I wrote it in one go um, just when I was doing the first draft. And then I edited, we edited the whole book, my publishers, and I said to my publishers, who I'm really great friends with, they're wonderful. And I said, the whole publishing house is white and my whole book agency are white and everyone attached to me pretty much is white that's going to see any of my work. And I really wanted a critical eye over that chapter because it doesn't feel right for me to, as a white person, be like, here's what I think about privilege, white privilege and then have loads of white people read it and be like, great, you know? Um, so I had this amazing friend called Arja Barber who's an anti-racism educator and she's a, a stylist and she does about like sustainable uh, clothing and she's like an amazing writer. And I got in contact with her and I said, Could you, would you be interested in adding notes to this section, like editing this chapter? And there's things called sensitivity reads, effectively, which is when um, a privileged person or mostly white people write something and it's talking about um, interesting societal issues or contentious issues to do with race or gender or whatever. They'll get someone from that marginalised community to read that writing or that editorial and edit it and then they'll pay that person. But what usually happens is, is that that writing comes out and there's a small credit at the beginning or the end of the book that someone has edited it. But I really didn't want my white privilege section to come out like, edited by this incredible black woman who is so brilliant in anti-racism education and is so bright, and then me release it and it sounds like I'm the most woke person in the universe. And Arja put the edits in, I was like, that's not cool. So I wrote this section, I didn't edit it, and then I got Arja to edit it and kind of pull me up on stuff I'd done wrong. And then I like published that second one just with all her notes in it. And the idea behind that was, we are so worried about making mistakes publicly and learning and growing and saying the wrong thing that we, like I say, we don't even approach the conversation. And we have to get to a point, especially as privileged white people, where we go, I'm going to try and I might get it wrong, but I'd rather try and get it wrong and learn about other people's experiences and be a better person for it than just not approach the conversation and stay ignorant because that's never going to help anyone. So that felt like a really interesting challenge for us to do and we worked on it together and then we did the audio book together and we had a long conversation in the audio book about that too. But I just think maybe transparency in the way that we're learning is good because I also don't think this trend of being like how woke you are and how sanitised you are is how valuable your voice is. I, I understand, I think we have to hold people to account. I have a massive issue with people who, who are committed to being ignorant, committed to making the wrong decisions, committed to saying that uh, racist or sexist jokes are jokes and banter that they're not. And I'm really not happy with that. I don't agree with that. But... I also want to see people make mistakes and go, yes, interesting, I'll just listen and learn. So I felt like that was a good um, exercise for me. And then hopefully, maybe it makes people think about, you know, being honest with their edits in their actual life and their conversations and their mistakes too. So I really was really happy doing that. It was really my favourite part of the book, I think, probably. It's really effective because 
privilege is, like you say, not having to think about some things. Yeah. And it's um, it's very interesting to read yours and think, oh, yeah, no, she's covered everything, and then go, oh, no, wait, yeah, that's my privilege there that I didn't even have to think about, like, in the same way that you didn't. Yeah. Um, and it helps you to see that racism, especially, is a system. That that's the critical thing. All been born into. Yeah. So, of course, we're all a part of it. It doesn't make you... Uh, racism isn't something that a person does when they're bad. No, it's not an action. No. This is the thing I think we've we've kind of got stuck on, especially between the last... I mean, I guess between generations specifically, but in the last 50 years, I think the conversation, especially in our generation, has changed massively in terms of societal issues like racism and gender, where before we would say being racist is walking down the street saying this particular phrase or shouting this at this person. It's not. It's a very complex spectrum and it's a structure. It's, you know, my friend not getting his CV read because he's got an ethnic, whatever that means, sounding name was the quote. It's, you know, black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth because they have the stereotype of being an angry black woman and they're not listened to. It's all the way through our society and it's not just an action and as soon as we get our heads into that it's microaggressions it's discrimination it's all these little things that happen every day that grind you down like sexism is as well I find it's really good when I'm having a conversation with someone about what I'm trying to learn about race or what I'm trying to work out about um, gender inequality to reframe it so when we talk about white, uh, white fragility which is the defense the kind of defensiveness white people get when we talk about racism I was talking to a friend recently about it, a white friend, um, who's uh, a girl, a woman, and she was kind of not kind of pushing back on it, and we were having a really nice conversation, a really supportive conversation about it. And I said, like, reframe that in a context of gender. So, like, male fragility. The whole, like, if I talk about a rape case or rape, rape accusations, the first thing is, like, yeah, but what about false reports? Okay, well, they're 2 to 4%. Yeah, but it's not all guys. Yeah, but no one's saying it is. That's a defence tactic. And if we can kind of reframe that in a gender conversation, we start to understand race conversations a bit more. So it's just about having those conversations and being open to them, having a debate about them, and understanding that it's, yeah, like exactly what you say. It's a spectrum and it's a structural thing. It's not just your behaviour and how you act. Um, someone who's very close to me once made the <laughs> mistake of saying, yeah, but it's not all men. And then... Uh, I literally can't. That's, someone said a great analogy about that the other day. They said, if you're at a pool and you're all sitting around the pool, and someone's running around the pool, and the lifeguard goes, stop running. Not everyone at the pool goes, it's not all of us running. <laughs> you're like, no, of course we don't, because I know who you're talking to. <laughs> it's really interesting. I'm not running, I want a medal. Um, on that hot button uh, topic, I think it's time to pass over to you guys. So we're going to bring the lights up a little bit, and we have some lovely microphone handlers. Uh, at the ready. Oh, look, it's all four. Uh, if you've got a question, please put your hands straight up in the air so we can see you. There's quite a lot of you and uh, some strong lights. Yes, we've got um, a lady down at the front here. And do we have anyone else put your hands up straight so I can direct a microphone in your general direction? Yeah, we've got a lady at the back and then one more here. Okay, so we'll go to you first. Oh, is this on? Yeah. Hi. Uh, hi. Thank you so much. I find your work really inspiring. Um, I was particularly struck when you were um, talking about your introduction and um, the numerous cases of, um, I guess, abuse that we've, as women, have become accustomed to and have kind of become a part of everyday life. And um, I wanted to ask your opinion on um, the bystander culture and, you know, when you were in a crowd and you passed your phone to a woman and um, if there's, how, if there's a way and how we can encourage men and um male friends to be able to confidently say to one another when you know they've made a lewd comment or done something inappropriate that what they've just done is wrong and encourage um, 
men to speak up as well. Mm, yeah, that's really important. We, the problem is, is I think often with gender inequality or even with race and all kinds of things, we expect the people who deal with the consequences of the oppression to dismantle the oppression. And that's just not fair because you're dealing with it every day and then you're doing all the work of educating and you're constantly asking people to help you dismantle this thing, which is far bigger than you. Um, and it's all of our jobs to get involved. It's all of our jobs to stand by and people ask me all the time about upskirting they're like when someone gets upskirted what should they do and i'm like can we reframe that question as when someone gets upskirted what can we all be doing so if you see someone get upskirted you take a photo of the guy you go over and make sure they're okay you report it it didn't even happen to you we have to be looking out for each other all the time and we're just not doing that really we're i don't know whether that's human nature or we're we're um, nervous of getting involved i don't really know where that comes from but we're kind of each to our own at the moment especially with sexual assault and sexual harassment and that just can't be the case anymore we're kind of at a tipping point you know seven-year-old girls getting upskirted young girls getting trafficked all over the world sex sex trafficked all over the world like we we're at a tipping point where this can't we can't only ask marginalized genders and women to solve this for themselves it's not fair and i think the way to get well, I feel like often the way to get guys involved is to um, start with the guys that are close to you that you know listen. I think as the person who deals with the difficult things growing up, like the bum slaps, like the... I mean, and let's be honest, this is very easy for me to say, like I've not dealt with serious, serious abuse or, or, or anything like that, but what, from my perspective, I always want to educate everyone. I always want to talk to all the guys I meet, like if they make a joke or whatever. Yes, I won't laugh at the jokes. Yes, I'll stay silent now a woman laugh, laughing at a sexist joke is like the biggest green light in the world because the person who deals with that issue is laughing at it. Stop laughing at sexist jokes. Say that's not cool. Call each other out. But I would say picking a handful of the good men in your life because we all have good men in life. My boyfriend, my dad, my best friend Ray, the good men in your life, having those conversations about what your experience has been, what the women in your life's experience has been and opening up to those men in your lives and asking them to go and further carry on that work instead of trying to educate 15 other men, grab the great men in your life that you know care about you and your experience and get them to become allies and get them to become advocators for it. That's what me, I do with my boyfriend now at work. He calls out stuff when the guys are you know, laughing about LGBTQI plus parades and stuff, he'll call it out. Because unfortunately, guys listen to guys and white people listen to white people and we listen to our own social groups. I don't know why that is the case, but that's what we do. So I would say instead of trying to do like, quantitative go qualitative go to like three good guys in your life have conversations over time don't get frustrated and try and go all in and educate them on everything and cry like i do every time just try and have conversations like when you get catcalled tell them when things happen tell them when there's news stories send them the stories send them the stories women are writing send them the stories marginalized people are writing ask them to read them because it matters to you and try and educate just those few and then ask them to further on that work don't try and do it all because you can't do it all at once is that helpful Okay. That's a great answer. <laughs> um, we've got two more microphones. Can you put our hands up so we can see where you are? Yes, you first. Hi, I wanted Hi. to ask um, your lawyer. You described the critical importance of that relationship and the strength that he gave you. Um, how do you access a very good lawyer if you don't have any lawyer friends or you're within those circles? That is a really good question because that was one of the hardest parts, I think, of the beginning of the campaign was finding Ryan. Um, now we're in a difficult position because legal aid societies have been cut massively. So where we used to have wonderful access to impartial legal advice for everyone, whether you're a campaigner or you're an individual, now we just don't have that as much and that's a massive shame. Um, but because legal aid societies have been cut so much, independent 
firms, pro bono firms, have kind of cropped up, and they're harder to find, but they are there. So, for instance, the Aberdeen Law Project in Scotland is a brilliant um, independent law project founded by students who will do all the admin, give you impartial advice. They're definitely there. Um, in the book, I talk about how to try and find a lawyer, but really, and I'll be totally honest, the way I found it was literally sending 8,000 emails. I did loads of research on all the major law firms in the UK, how they do their pro bono work. So there's two ways they do it. The heads of the law firm, not two ways, but there's kind of major, major you know, difference between the two, kind of generally, where the heads of the law firm will go, that's a great pro bono case to be involved with because it looks good for us to associate with it and it's great for the firm. Or the law firm will let the young lawyers who are excited about opportunities choose their own. And I always think that's better because then they have the passion and they want to carry on. Um, but I just did loads of research on law firms and then I sent a thousand emails. Um, and I tweeted law firms and I went to law students and I asked them about where they were going to go, where they were excited to go. Um, and a lot of law students helped me, like third-year law students, who gave great advice but obviously couldn't represent me, but they could point me in the direction of great law firms. That was a lot easier five years ago. It's not now. Um, but I write about in the book kind of the best way to try and find them, really, through legal aid societies and through the Aberdeen Law Project and through universities and through legal f firms, but it's very hard. That, I, I think I was really lucky because I just asked a million people and slid into a thousand million DMs. <laughs> I'm really sorry. There's no real answer for that, I don't think. I know that's really useful. That's <laughs> the honest answer. Um, and where's our other microphone? Yes, let's go here. Um, so I was just wondering, it seems really straightforward to me. It seems really obvious that upskirting should be against the law. Yes. Um, but obviously you took, it took quite a while to get it through and to mm. get people to actually listen to you. So I was just wondering what the basis was for people actually opposing the bill and what you think was the reason that people were kind of against this becoming a law? So the only person that was against the bill was Chope. I didn't meet one MP who disagreed, like, in principle with what we were, we were proposing. There was no one that was really against what we were proposing. The issue just was that it's politics. <laughs> so I went in during Brexit and was like, makeup's getting illegal, and they were like, quite busy not a priority so it was the problem and the difficulty was getting all parties on side together because they don't agree on a lot of issues and it was and trying to get them to agree on one issue was the biggest challenge there was no one i walked into a room with who went no upskirting should be legal it's fine that didn't exist it was just difficult to get people to make it a priority to get government time it was the process of politics that made it hard um but chope objecting uh he said he objected to the bill because he said he didn't think he didn't agree with um, bills going through on a Friday without reasonable debate, which makes no sense because if he hadn't objected, the next stage would have been committee stage, which was debate. And he he uh, he tabled 41 bills. He even slept over in the House of Parliament so he could table to table bills on Fridays. So his his I think he was just angry that a regular person had come in and got a bill f through faster than he had. Um, but generally, every politician I met agreed with me and agreed with Ryan. It was just very, very hard to get the time to push a bill through because it wasn't a priority. And that's really what I think a lot of campaigning is about, whether that's in politics or it's in your school or your workplace. People will often agree with you. And I think when people agree, a campaigner can often go, right, OK, we've done it then, that's great. And that's not true. You have to force people to see it through to the end because unless they're forced, they won't find the time. That's kind of what campaigning is about, I think. I reckon we've got time for another round of questions. So, okay, we've got... Oh, hello. Um, we've got that person there right by you with the glasses, and then keep your hands up, and I'll get a microphone to you. Um, who else have we got? Uh, we've got a lady there in blue, and we've got a couple on the front row, so we'll have these two as well. So, yes, please. Yes. Yes. 
Hi. Hi. Um, you mentioned that you'd worked in advertising, and I know that a wee bit ago, the ASA um, put through regulations for kind of gender stereotyping in advertising. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Um, more recently, I think there's been a few brands that have been called up on kind of using gender stereotyping kind of wrongly, or um, I think the word was that it causes harm in ads. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that in terms of it being regulated from kind of like a body to say like, this can't be done because I think a lot of advertising reflects what's in society. So it's just kind of like how that works in terms of like what's influencing what kind of thing, what you're Yeah, thinking. yeah, I th that's a very good question. Um, I'm obviously biased because I used to work in advertising. So I really believe advertising influences us in a way that we don't even realize how much it influences us. It's unbelievable. Like most of the thing, hair removal for women was an ad campaign. That's where shaving your legs came from because they realized they could make money from women as well as men and razors. That's the reason we shave our legs. Like we don't realize the effect that it has. I, we learned all about this in uni, about semantics and about the psychology behind advertising and the things we, you could sell people just in the way that you appeal to their experience is unbelievable. So I think regulating the, um, gender stereotypes, I think it's a good thing. Gender stereotypes have, have been a huge part of advertising. In the 50s, there was, you know, adverts of women, like, of, like they were tiger rugs with women's heads on them because they were housewives. And the guy walking over a woman, like a woman who was a rug with her head on the ground because she was cleaning the house all day and she's knackered. Like, none of that's ever going to be good for people. And especially when we're moving through into a society where we're finally giving language and bringing language and, and words to people who have basically existed under the burden of shame, who are gender unconforming and exist in a space that the gender binary just isn't. We have to have media that reflects that change in society. And also we have to be responsible and push that further because I don't... I think the media has a lot to answer for, and I think advertising has a lot to answer for, and I don't think we can rely on all of us to just progress society without it. I think we really need to set precedents first and then progress through society after that. So I, I think it's a good thing that they're, they're stopping um, gender stereotyping in a big way in advertising. I don't think we need it, and I think gender's a construct. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, we've got a mic over here. Um, hi. Um, so I've been reading a lot recently about activism fatigue, and I was wondering, I mean, I read articles and I read all this stuff and I just get a bit overwhelmed and upset by all of the awful things happening. How do you personally sort of maintain your mental health um, when being an activist? Because I think it must be exhausting. It is exhausting. I will start by saying I am extraordinarily lucky. I have amazing mental health. I'm, I'm, I don't know why, I don't know where it comes from. I'm just very, very privileged to have very good mental health and I'm annoyingly positive as a person, which is totally separate to my mental health, but I am annoyingly positive as a person. Um, I also have an incredible support system. I've grown up with a very, very progressive family, an incredibly close-knit family who are like my insides. Um, not everyone has that support system either. And I think a lot of uh, activism fatigue or campaigning fatigue or all that kind of stuff, I think a lot of that comes from trying to do something on your own and not having a support system to pick you back up again because... I think there's a bit of a narrative, especially with, with, with women who want to change things, which is like, you can do it all. You can go, you know, go girl, do it all. You can nail it, you're a queen, blah, 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 like I was saying before. And it's not actually up to, it's not down to you to keep going all the time. You need people who are going to pick you out of the bath and put you on the sofa and feed you food and sit with you while you cry for three hours. We all need that. We all need those people in our lives. So I've managed to get through the really hard times in the campaign literally because of my support system. And in my family, I already had that, but in my friends... 
there's always, I think we probably all in this room have people that kind of make you feel a bit crap. Like you have friends who are kind of not really there for you that much or they kind of make you feel shit for no reason. You don't know why or you put a lot into the relationship and you don't really get a lot back and it's just not a great friendship. And I've been very like intentional in the last two years about like deprioritizing those friendships. And now they're like people I go to have a drink with but I don't rely on them. And I've really built like a bulletproof support system because if you're going to do something hard, you need those people. You need cheerleaders in your corner. So your support system's massive. If, you don't, if you're not privileged or lucky enough to have that in real life, online it can be amazing for that. You can find communities of people who are doing exactly what you do who will become... The people I've met online the last few years have become the people sometimes I feel like I connect with the most because they're doing the same work as me and they're just as tired as me and they're just as passionate as me and they really keep me going when I'm struggling. Um, but also with activism, I think it's really important to realise that like you own it. We've... You, we're very used to being in institutions like school and work where if you take a day off, you're in trouble or you're behind on work or you, you know, you've got a day in lieu and all this kind of crap. When you're doing something you care about that you own, take a day off. Take four days off. Watch Harry Potter in your pants. Do whatever you want. Look after yourself. You own it. So if you want to take four days off, it happens four days later. It doesn't matter. Like you've got to take that space. And also, nothing is more important than your mental health. If you... If you if you're watching the news and it makes you devastated every day and you're struggling with just taking in all that information, don't, you don't have to go and change the world, just look after yourself. Like, we all need to look after ourselves. But when you do, and if you feel healthy enough to, getting involved in activism and finding your community, I think, makes you feel often more positive. Because in this work, I've never met more amazing people that have made me feel good about the world. I see every week people that are doing like amazing stuff because I'm now in this space and it just makes me feel excited about the potential for change. So actually sometimes I think action can be the cure for fear. If you get involved, you might meet amazing people if you feel healthy enough to do so. But take time off. Nothing's worth like, you know, ruining your mental health over ever. So we've got two last questions and they're going to have to be very quick questions and very quick answers too. Oh, no. <laughs> very, very quick question. Sorry, I'm really... <laughs> so if you could go back to yes. days and weeks after the upskirting and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Mm. Oh, God. Might be a very short answer, but it might take half an hour to get there. Yeah. <laughs> Wear better knickers. No, <laughs> um, uh, take time, Take more time off and ask for help. I just didn't. I had a full-time job and I was getting up at 5am and I, I, there was periods of times where I just, I was devastated, I was ruined, I just ruined myself. Um, so take time off, ask for help more and you don't have to do everything on your own because you can't, you're only one person. It's very general advice but I should have taken it. Um, these questions are good, these quick questions. And one more from you please. Um, I was just wondering what your thoughts on the fact that often the onus falls on a woman to sort of relive her personal traumas as a means of adding credibility to her cause. For example, in the Me Too movement, a lot of actresses had to publicly discuss very traumatic instances in their life to sort of let people take notice. So how do you sort of survive through having to go through your darkest times to add credibility to, to your actions? That's a great question. I'm going to try and answer it really quickly. Um, I don't think you should have to constantly retell people what your, what your experiences for them to believe you. I don't think women should have to tell their trauma to be humanised and people to understand actually how bad things are. I think that's ridiculous. I've told my upskirt story probably 400 times and I still cry because I still don't like talking about it. I have to do it to make people realise how important this is. Shouldn't have to do that. There was a, I'll finish this with there was a meme that went around last week and it was, a, it was a title and it said, I don't understand why I have to explain to you that you should care about other people. I don't understand why we still have to do that. So don't make women or marginalised genders relive their trauma all the time. Listen to them the first time, believe them the first time, and then carry on their work and act accordingly and do something about it. I feel like that's a pretty good 
place to end. Great question. Um, thank you so much for your excellent questions. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank and um, don't forget, oh, don't forget, buy the book. Buy the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't forget, buy, buy five copies of the book, buy ten. <laughs> and you can find us, well, you can find Gina in the um, signing tent just there. If you can stay seated while I get Gina away so she can get ready. Um, but please give a huge uh, book festival thank you to Gina Martin. Thanks. Thank you to you. Oh, no, you were great. Now we look smug. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens. <laughs>